So uh, this week we are in the middle of this latest series of big questions, um, things that people are puzzled by about Christianity uh, or the Bible. So they're a different kind of talk than we do here most other weeks. Uh, Normally we aim for all of our talks to be very practical and and really relevant to everyday life, but today's uh, subject is a little bit more uh, teaching than preaching. So if you are a guest or a visitor here today, please don't give up on us yet. Uh, Normal service will be resumed in a couple of weeks' time. So this week, we are going to think about this question. Is the angry, violent God that we read about in the Old Testament, the one who smites people and who tells the Israelites to utterly destroy their enemies, is he, can he possibly be, the same as that nice Jesus who said, love one another, that we see in the New Testament. Now, in case you've not read much of the Old Testament, let me just give you a little bit of quick background as to why people wonder about that question in the first place. And it's because there are certain passages, especially the ones that deal with the stories of Israel's battles uh, with the Canaanites, after God rescues them from slavery in Egypt in what's called the Exodus, there are certain passages that seem to command or at least to condone genocide or ethnic cleansing of the inhabitants of the land, as we would now call it. And God, having told them to do it, is often given as the reason. But of course, this seems completely incompatible with everything that we know about the nature and character of Jesus the Son in the New Testament and everything that he said and did. Let me give you the most widely quoted example. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, then you must destroy them totally and show them no mercy. Do not leave alive anything that breathes completely destroy them as the Lord your God has commanded you. And I've included all of the relevant Bible verses on uh, the slide here so you can look them up later if you want to. Just pause the video uh, when you see it online. And it's texts like these that cause people to ask the perfectly reasonable question, what is the moral difference between modern ethnic cleansing in places like Rwanda and Bosnia and Kosovo and the Canaanite genocide in the Old Testament. If it's morally wrong in the 20th and 21st centuries, then why wouldn't it also be wrong in the 15th or 13th centuries BC? How does it being in the Bible make any difference? What's the difference between Moses and Joshua believing that God wanted them to wage a holy war against the Canaanites, and Osama bin Laden, believing Allah wanted him to wage a holy war against America. And all the more so when we contrast these Old Testament verses with what Jesus said and did in the New Testament. You've heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. So it's a bit of a contrast, isn't it? And a bit of a problem, wouldn't you say? And funnily enough, that well-known atheist Richard Dawkins has picked up on this with a few choice words. 
Actually, I wish he hadn't chosen some of these words because I can't pronounce them. Um, <laughs> but let's uh, give it a go, shall we? See if we can manage. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniac, or sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. <laughs> now, just in case you're wondering, Dawkins isn't a Christian. But it may not surprise you to know that Dawkins isn't the first to have a problem with this picture of this Old Testament God. Someone called Marcion, who was a bishop in the early church in Rome in the second century, he had a big problem with him as well. Here he is. Marcion's problem went further. He wanted to remove everything from the New Testament that made any reference to the Old uh, by the time he'd finished, less than half of it was left. Of the four Gospels, only Luke survived the cull. And even from the books that Marcion liked, he took out all the verses that he didn't agree with. So how did Marcion explain the difference between the God of the Old Testament that he didn't like and the God of the New Testament that he did? Well, very simply, what he decided was that the old and the new had to be talking about completely different gods. So he reckoned that there was a supreme god, a god of love, over and above everything, but that he wasn't the one that featured in the Old Testament. The one in the Old Testament was an inferior, lesser god, a creator god who made everything and who we see in the Old Testament stories, but that God was a nasty piece of work, a bit like Dawkins described him. So seeing what was happening in the world, Marcion reckoned that the supreme God, the God of love, decided then to reveal himself in Jesus. Even though he had no responsibility for the creation, he decided to get involved, to defeat this nasty, horrible, lesser God and to rescue us from him. That was Marcion's theory. And the debate about Marcion's ideas was one of the major controversies in the early church in the second century. But it actually had a positive effect because it made them sit down and clarify exactly what they did believe. And the result of that was the very first of the historic creeds or statements of belief, the Apostles' Creed which is still used to help define Christian beliefs today. And that creed made clear that there is only one God and that he's the same God in both Old and New Testaments. And in case you're wondering whether anyone else agreed with Marcion at the time, they didn't. He managed to successfully unite every other Christian writer of the day against him. And we still use the term Marcionite today to describe someone who tries to reject the Old Testament from the Christian Bible. But that, of course, only takes us so far, doesn't it? I mean, Marcion may have been wrong with these crazy ideas, but how do we answer that question? So let me tell you some of the other ways that Christians deal with it. 
Uh, you may recognize some of these yourself. Uh, one is, some Christians just simply ignore it. They just read the New Testament and they say, it's all a bit too complicated for me. Which works fine for some people, so if that's you, just check Facebook for the next 10 minutes or so while I carry on. Another way is they say, well, God knows best. His ways are not our ways. He must have had his reasons for it, so we just need to trust him. And in a way, that's fine too. If that works for you, you too can just zone out for the next 10 minutes. Another view goes beyond just God knows best and tries to explain it and justify it on the grounds of what awful people these Canaanites were, that they were evil and immoral and did bad things like idolatry and child sacrifice and prostitution. So basically, they deserved everything they got. And it was very important to rid the land of their bad influence. Now, the only problems with this view are, firstly, there's no historic evidence that the Canaanites were particularly worse than any other nations at the time who did similar things. And secondly, surely, it's still genocide. Does that really justify the slaughter of women and children? And then finally, um, last as well as least, I would say, finally there is the Calvinist view that you'll hear from people like John Piper. Piper says, and I quote, it's right for God to slaughter women and children any time he pleases. God gives life and he takes life. Everybody who dies, dies because God wills that they die. The Calvinist view gives God the credit for everything. It says that whatever happens, it must be God who does it. And that's because they assume that God is in direct control of everything in this universe like a machine operator pulling all the levers and flicking all the switches. But as you can probably imagine, they have to use some highly technical arguments to try to skirt around the obvious conclusion for a non-Calvinist that God must therefore be the author of all of the evil in the world as well. So you may have heard some or all of these ideas. But of course, so far... None of them have brought Jesus into it, have they? And when we do that, we'll find what I believe is the answer to our question this morning. Now, I wish that we had an hour to cover this subject, but I'm possibly the only person in the room who is thinking that. <laughs> so you have to forgive me in the time available for oversimplifying a little bit. Now, the reason that Christians have come up with these different ways of understanding that, or, or answering this question mostly come down to a couple of things. Uh, one is their concept of God, of what he's like. And that includes what kind of a God they think that they are relating to today. Whether you think that God is the kind of God who, left to his own devices, would smite you the way he smited the Canaanites if it wasn't for Jesus stepping in to protect you and take all of that smiting on himself. And then the other thing is the way in which people understand the Bible 
is the word of God. Not whether they do, but how they do. All Christians honor the Bible as divinely inspired. They believe what the Bible says about itself, which is that it is God-breathed. In other words, we believe that the Holy Spirit breathed into the human writers, or on them, or through them, in some way in what they wrote. So that in the Bible, God himself is uniquely present in it in some way. The question, of course, is in what way? And the big question here is the extent to which God worked within the culture and within the cultural assumptions of the ancient world in which those human authors lived and within which they were hearing God speak to them. Put another way around, did God bypass everything that they would have seen as obvious in terms of how the world worked, how things were in society, and how things worked in the natural world and the spiritual world? Did he sanitize it from the cultural background of its original context in order to make everything in the Bible timeless? Or did he work with how they saw things and within the constraints of how they saw things? If the divinity of the Bible is speaking to us through the humanity of the Bible, how do we hear the divinity through the humanity? And the answer is we need to find the time less in the time bound. We need to hear the time less through the time bound. A little bit like we would use a colander or a sieve in the kitchen. You see, God's word is God's gift to us. But just like a Christmas present or a birthday present, we mustn't mix up the present itself with the wrapping that it comes in. Because the Bible's timeless truth comes to us in a time-bound wrapper. So I suggest to you that we shouldn't criticize God for having had the audacity to write it through people who had an ancient worldview rather than a modern scientific worldview. For God allowing them to use their ancient literary styles rather than modern literary styles just because that would have suited us better as 21st century readers. So as intelligent people who Jesus said should love the Lord our God with our minds as well as our hearts and souls, we need to wise up and stop confusing the gift of God's word with the wrapping that it comes to us in. And we need to do a little bit of work sometimes with the benefit of some good theology to help us so that we can see the difference. Now, some may be wondering, let me clarify this, I am not saying that the Bible has mistakes in it, in the sense of it being flawed and therefore in any way unreliable. Because something isn't a mistake or a flaw if God himself has intentionally given it to us that way. So let's take science as an obvious example. God leaving in the Bible things that were considered at the time to be scientifically accurate, even though they no longer conform today 
to what we know to be scientifically accurate is not a mistake. Something can only be true to the best of the knowledge and belief of the person who's saying it, in good faith, on the basis of all of the information available to them at a particular point in time. So, if and when subsequent discoveries expand our knowledge of something in nature, or in medicine, or in science, then those discoveries are simply telling us more about the way God made it in the first place. More than a biblical author knew in his own time. So there is a progressive revelation going on of something that has always been the case from the beginning. And as we'll see in a moment, I think there's an analogy here for how the nature and character of God, of who God is and what he's like, unfolds in the biblical story, leading up to and ultimately and fully revealed in the person of Jesus. Does that make any sense? Okay, a few nods, a few don't knows, and I think I heard a no over there. <laughs> so let's just see if I can explain it a bit more, see if it will make a bit more sense. The first thing to say is that although the church fathers decided that both Old and New Testaments should be in the Bible for us as Christians, they called them Old and New for a reason. In uh, Matthew 4.16, Matthew quotes a prophecy of Isaiah that Jesus fulfilled. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And that light was the coming of Jesus. Similarly, in John 8.12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The revelation of who God is and what he's like from the past has suddenly been superseded by the revelation of who God is and what he's like in Jesus. It's like chalk and cheese, or in biblical language, it's like a, a great light suddenly appearing in the darkness and penetrating it. And if you think about the difference between what it's like if you're trying to read a book in a dark room compared to what it's like when someone turns on the light, you can see why Matthew and John and the other New Testament authors say that's what it was like for us when Jesus came and lit up our understanding of who God is and what he's like. The book of Hebrews says that in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. In other words, there is a qualitative difference between these two understandings. One commentator says that the coming of Jesus represents a whole new order of divine disclosure. In other words, it's a different order of magnitude between the prophet's past understanding of who God is and the new revelation that we see in Jesus, the Son. And then finally, we need to remember how early it was in the Bible story when Moses and Joshua were first learning about 
who God is and what he was like when we come across these genocidal texts. If you remember Moses' first ever encounter with God, when God called him to lead his people out of Egypt in the Exodus, when God spoke to him through the burning bush. And during that conversation, Moses has to say, excuse me, but which God are you? What's your name? Which God, shall I say, is sending me? So as modern Christians, or even as modern atheists, what we shouldn't do is to read into the story. We shouldn't expect the characters at the time to have the exact same understanding of who God is and what he's like that's available to us now, thousands of years later, especially the understanding that we've had since the coming of Jesus. It's not fair for us to judge those who featured early in the story, who didn't have the benefit of our understanding, as if they did have or should have. The reason that uh, Jesus said John the Baptist was the greatest of the Old Testament prophets in Luke 7.28 is because John had seen who God was and what God was like in Jesus. No previous prophet had ever had the opportunity to see that before. So John's understanding was way beyond what any other prophets had ever been. When one of Jesus' disciples, Philip, says to him in John 14, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered him like this. He said, don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you for such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? In other words, Jesus is saying, we're inseparable. You can't even fit a cigarette paper between us. I do what I see the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, the Son also does. John 5, 19. But what we don't see Jesus telling people to do is to commit genocide or anything remotely like it. On the contrary, we see Jesus saying that we should love our enemies and uh, we see him doing that as well. You see, it's not that anyone before Jesus had ever encountered God or that no one had ever heard God speak to them or reveal something of what he was like to them. It's just that the quality of the picture they were seeing wasn't the same. I wonder what kind of TV you had in your house when you were growing up. Do you remember how bad the pictures were at the time? For some of us, do you remember uh, trying to move a, a portable aerial around the room to try to get a signal? Compare that to the latest UHD 4K televisions that are now available. Aren't they incredible? It's hard to believe the difference in the sharpness and the clarity of what we see now compared to what we used to see in the past. We didn't even realize how bad the pictures were at the time because we had no idea what they could be and what one day they would be. And it's kind of like that with the pictures we see in the Old Testament 
of what God is like. They're picturing the same God, but the sharpness and clarity of the image is completely different. I remember when our grandson Laurie was five years old and uh, he was at our house uh, watching Peppa Pig on TV and he said, Nana, why is your TV so blurry? And I was pretty ashamed when I heard this story because up until then I thought our picture was pretty good. But we might say the same about the blurry picture of God that people were seeing in the early Old Testament. Uh, that phrase I read out earlier in uh, Hebrews 1.3 of Jesus being the exact representation of God's being, uh, the word translated representation originally meant an instrument used for engraving. And it was later used to speak about the impression made on coins, which is why different translations of this verse say that Jesus is the perfect imprint of what God is like, the exact likeness of God's being, an exact copy of God's nature, and the flawless expression of the nature of God. So, if Jesus is indeed the flawless expression of the nature of God, and if God is eternally unchanging in nature and character, if he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, then any previous understandings of who God is and the kinds of things, kinds of things that he says and does will always potentially need adjusting to the extent that they fail to correspond to the nature and character of God that we see in Jesus. The Jesus who is the flawless expression of the nature of God. He is the lens through which we need to see everything that came before. And, for that matter, everything that comes up now. So, Anyone who claims to be speaking for God in our day can be judged and should be judged on the basis of whether that looks like and sounds like the Jesus that we know from Scripture. So one final quick word about where that leaves the Bible as the Word of God. Before the Bible is ever an instruction manual or a list of things that God wants us to believe, First and foremost, the Bible is a story. Now, I don't mean a fairy story, and I don't mean fiction. What I mean is that it is mostly narrative of people's lives and their experiences of God. And it's a narrative in which we see people getting things right, and we see people getting things wrong. They get God right, and they get him wrong. And over many, many years, the people who wrote the Bible and compiled the Bible had every chance to sanitize it and to take out the bits that they didn't like, just as Marcion wanted to do, and to take out the bits that might put people off or that they might misunderstand. But they didn't. They left it all in. They didn't sanitize anything. They decided to allow the Word of God to speak for itself, warts and all, because it's not just the story of God, it's the story of people and God. 
including lots of people who screw up and get things wrong, just like you and me. So it's hardly any surprise that we should see people like us mirrored in the Bible. And I want to say, thank God that we do. It means that there is hope for us when we see ourselves in its pages and in its characters. And if that sometimes means that as ordinary Christians who aren't theologians, sometimes we need some help in figuring bits of it out, then so be it. But in the meantime, let's just do what John Wimber said and stick to the main and the plain, which I think is what God challenges you and me to do. Not to hide behind the fact that we don't understand everything in the Bible or everything about God before we're willing to make a decision to follow him in our lives. I think Jesus is saying to us, you know, the main and the plain, that's enough for us to make that decision to follow him without having to understand everything before we do. So does God command genocide? No. People do that. What kinds of things does God command? Well, go to Jesus again. When Jesus was asked what was the most important commandment, he said it was this one. Actually, he couldn't resist saying that it was two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And he said the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets, all the story of scripture that came before me hangs on and has always hung on these two commandments ever since the beginning of the biblical story. Jesus is our lens for seeing who God is and what he's like and what he's always been like. He is our picture of God in ultra-high definition 4K. Amen.